0: So that's the challenge still. What are we making? We'll be looking at that all semester. We go through this series on discipleship. And so I'm glad you're here today and you're going to join us as we kind of dig into this. This is the second week. We're going to go through till Christmas. My name is James Green. I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel. And I'm going to get the opportunity to lead us through several weeks of this study. Before we jump in, it's really on my heart, I want to thank the folks who help lead us into worship every week. I don't have that gift, and, and man, I don't know how I could take it for granted if I did, but But they come and they invest a lot of time and effort and energy into leading us. And so we're blessed by God through them. So I hope you enjoy that. It's hard sometimes to get up here and speak right after having worshiped with them because I'm crying and stuff. So very, very glad that they're here. I'm going to be leading through this. Pastor Danny, our senior pastor, is going to be leading in some other areas in the church, specifically with the Nehemiah Project. And so you guys sadly are stuck with me. Sorry for you. But we're going to jump right in today with this question of what is a disciple? We talked last week about this with that command the mandate to go make disciples. What is a disciple? Well, for those who are in Christ, we want to make Christ followers. That's what that means. But we also talked about it some kind of in a broad sense, just generally, of being a follower. A disciple is someone who follows someone else. So as we prepare next week to look at how Jesus chose the 12, how he kind of intentionally poured into three of them, it's discipling. And today we'll dig a little deeper into the meaning of that word. The English word that we use, disciple, comes from a Latin word, discipulus. In the Greek, in the New Testament, it's the word mathetus, but both that Latin word and the Greek word mean the same thing. I mean pupil or learner, kind of essentially, I think, student. In the Greek culture, if you were in that kind of learning relationship, you were a disciple. So it didn't matter if you were like an intern to a philosopher or you were an apprentice to a doctor or a lawyer or you were a student of a plumber. By definition, you were a disciple. That's what you were. But when we open the Bible, you see the term disciple used primarily in the Gospels, it's in the four accounts of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And then in the book of Acts. And if you look there, there's a shift. There's a change in the way it's used between the Gospels and in the book of Acts. In the Gospels, there are a few occasions, not a ton, but there are a few where we see disciples being used in that general sense of being a follower. In Matthew 22, verse 16, and Luke chapter 5, verse 33, we saw that the Pharisees had disciples. In all four Gospels, there's mention of the fact that John the Baptist had followers. They called them disciples. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels, Jesus heals a blind man in John 9. The end of that scene in John 9, 28, the Jews who didn't want to become followers of Jesus called themselves disciples of Moses. So that word disciple is used some in Scripture in a broad sense of just being a follower, being the plumber's disciple, being a learner. But primarily the way we see it in the Gospels is it describes those 12 guys, those guys that were Jesus' followers, his students, he called them specifically to do that, just to follow him. So open your Bibles, if you would, with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be all over the Bible today. Get there in your Bible app or however you get there. We're going to have the verses up on the screen to try and help you out. We get moving too fast. But here, this is Matthew. This is the guy who recorded that mandate that we looked at last week to make disciples who will mature and multiply and make disciples. When did Matthew become a disciple? Happens in verse 9 of chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. That was Matthew's job. And he said to him, follow me. And something incredible happened. He did it. He got up and he followed him. That's the call the original 12 disciples had. And it's honestly the same call we get today, to follow Jesus Christ. Now, we don't often refer to ourselves that way. Somebody asks us about our relationship with God, we don't say, "Oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. But these guys did. They were obedient in that sense of the word, so much so that now we use that almost as a synonym for disciple, a follower. That's what they did. When Jesus walked the earth, they literally followed him. The last three years of Jesus' life, if he had a business card, it would have said itinerant teacher. I just walk around teaching and these guys follow me. Matthew gave up his job. Every one of the 12 did. Look at this example in Mark 1, verses 16 to 20. As he, this is Jesus, was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Casting a net in the sea, why? For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. The same incredible thing happens immediately. They left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, also in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, poor Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 to 30, says the disciples left their parents. Mark 10, 28 basically says they left everything to follow Jesus. Does that sound normal? I hope we're engaging in this deep enough to go, why? <laughs> why would they do that? What kind of job offer would come along? What kind of opportunity would come to you where you'd go, that's it, I'm ditching everything, I'm out? I'm like if the Cardinals called me tomorrow and said, hey, you know, with Alan Craig still on the DL, we could really use a fat, slow, backup first baseman with... With, with no cartilage in his knees, you can't hit the curveball. What do you think? You know? uh, even with that offer, I'd have to at least think, you know, do I have any vacation times? Or, you know, I, I don't think I'm leaving my wife and my kids and my ministry to jump in and do something like this. What is it that would make these guys do this? Well, to truly get this, I think we've got to have a little history lesson. And we have to learn a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Israel. I mentioned last week Jesus not from around this area. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. And his life and his ministry on earth was there. And so for young boys, back in first century Israel, if, if, if you were growing up and they ask you, what do you want to be, the answer was, I want to be a rabbi. That's radically different than if you ask kids today. We asked a bunch of kids here in church "Say, hey, what do you want to be? Rabbi wouldn't crack the top 50. <laughs> I don't think that's what they're going to say. They'd come up with other cool stuff. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a baseball player. I want to be the president. Maybe not that one so much anymore. But, but they'd say things you know, that would give them prestige. There'd be fame or a lot of money. Cool stuff. I wonder where they learned that from. <laughs> well, back in the day, when Jesus was walking the earth, young boys wanted to be rabbis. That was the profession. It involved these huge high standards and accountability and fame. Because truly, if you were a rabbi, you were the best of the best. Literally, the title rabbi means teacher. you view it with proper respect, it means master. And if you study the Gospels 54 different times, Jesus is referred to as rabbi or teacher. So Jesus was given that kind of recognition, that kind of respect from people. Rabbis were really highly educated. So today, if you enter a profession that requires education, what do you do? You go to school. And if it's, you know, higher education, that's great. You go to school, and then you go to some more school. And then you probably do like an internship or a residency program or student teaching. You get a lot of school. Well, that same thing happened with young Jewish boys back in the day. All of them started school when they were about six. And from the ages of six to ten, they'd be enrolled in school, and it was called Bet Sefer, means the house of the book. And the book they studied was Torah. As he said, Jesus grew up in this Orthodox Jewish region of Israel called Galilee. And the people there believed that God had spoken directly to their ancestors through Moses. And they believed that God had actually given them a copy of what he said to Moses, They believed it was the first five books of the Bible. This was called the Torah. So if you go to elementary school today, my boy Trace, he goes to elementary school, he goes to recess like three times. It's his favorite class. And and I don't know if it's a class. And, And they go to math, and they go to computer, and they go to reading. They have all these things. That's what school looks like now. But back in the day, if you were in Bet Sefer, here's what it looked like. You went as a young kid and sat at the feet of a rabbi, and you memorized the Torah. That's what your day looked like. And we've seen that before. That's the posture of learning in the Old Testament, is to sit at the feet of a teacher. You remember this in Luke 11? Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha. Where does Mary sit? She sits right at Jesus' feet. That's where he learned. So these young students would sit at the feet of a rabbi, and they'd memorize the first five books of the Bible. I'm going to pause just for a second and let that sink in? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized by these 6- to 10-year-old kids. I don't have that many 80s song lyrics stuck in my head. These little kids are memorizing the Torah. And now here's the deal. Just like today, not all students are created equal. I mean, some students couldn't do it. I would have been one, I'm sure, that couldn't. And if that was the case, that was okay. And if you couldn't memorize the Torah, then you'd drop out of school after Bet Sefer, and you'd go learn the family trade. You know, maybe you'd become a fisherman or a carpenter or whatever. That was fine. You'd start contributing to society. However, if you nailed those first five books then you got to stay in school. If you showed promise and you graduated, you moved on to something called Bet Talmud, means the house of learning. And here, between the ages of 10 to like 14 or 15, you got to memorize the whole Old Testament. Of course, you already had the first five books down, so only 34 more to go. I mean, I'm not talking about the order of the Old Testament. I know that. They memorized the entire Old Testament. When test day came, here's how the test went. The rabbi would pick five consecutive words in Sam, and you were supposed to pick it up from there. We think school's hard today. There's more. In Bet Talmud, there was more than just this rote memorization. Here, the rabbi would start asking you what they called questions of understanding. We've seen this in Scripture, too. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us because you saw Jesus do this, didn't you? Somebody would ask Jesus a question, and he'd respond with another question. You think Jesus was stalling for time? Well, I don't remember that one. Hold on. <laughs> Let me ask a question and see if I can come up with it. That wasn't it. See, rabbis knew, Jesus knew, just like good teachers today know, just like wise parents know, if you can get somebody to answer their own question, then they really understand the concept. They really grasp what you're trying to teach. So the rabbis did this, Jesus did this, to make sure folks had really wrestled with the application. With the thoughts behind these words they were memorizing because that was the key. I mean, this is going to sound like a funny statement to make in church, I think, but it's not enough to memorize Scripture. It's really not. Now, hear me on this because it can be wonderful to memorize Scripture. I I strongly advocate it, but not as a means to an end. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 11. I think it really instructs us. There's a reason behind memorizing. It says, Your word I have treasured in my heart so I can win a Bible trivia contest. No, that I may not sin against you. That's it. I don't, I don't hide your word in my heart so I can pull it out of context and use it to justify a behavior I have. No, I, I put it in my heart so I can apply it and not sin. So your word can guide me when I need to make a decision. So that was the idea in Bet Talmud. You're supposed to know and be able to help people apply God's word in the Old Testament. There was another reason where it was really critically important for these folks to memorize the Old Testament And it's because if you were lucky, there was maybe one copy of the Scriptures within a day's walk of where you were. The printing press was still 1,400 years off at this time. In Jesus' day, like like when the good Samaritan took the wounded guy to the inn, the Gideons hadn't been there already and put a copy of the Torah in in the drawer. It just wasn't out there like that. And so here's the key as you think about this, as you read the Gospels. Do you notice how many times something comes up? Something's mentioned, and it's something heavy. It's like something serious out of the Old Testament law. And in the context, it's, it's assumed that everybody knows what the Bible says about that subject. Jesus does, the, does this with the expert in the law back there in Luke 10, before he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. That guy asked Jesus a question about inheriting eternal life. And what does Jesus say? Well, what's written? Because he knows if this guy's an expert in the law, he should have been through Bet Talmud. He should have this memorized. He knows what the Scriptures say. So if you made it past this point as a student back in Jesus' day, now you're like 14, 15. If you're really good in Bet Talmud, if you're really good, and if you're the best of the best, then you get to move on in your education. For everybody else, it was the family business for you. And that was fine. There was no shame in that. But if you were really exceptional, then you were ready for an apprenticeship. And here's what you did. You'd go find a rabbi that you respected, that you really admired, and you'd ask him, can I be a disciple of yours? Could, could I become a student of yours? Could I follow you? It kind of flips that notion we have about recruiting. Like the best of the best college athletes, there's tons of folks who want to talk to them. And they get calls from Rabbi U and Rabbi Tech and Rabbi State, and we're following them on Twitter. And, you know, there's all these things where they want to know them personally. But back in the day, it didn't work like that. It didn't work like the NFL draft. You know, a bunch of rabbis get together in a room and go, okay, we got Jedediah on the board. What's his time in the 40s?" Well, he says 40 verses in like under a minute and a half. That's really good. Ooh, I want Jedediah. It you know. doesn't work that way at all. The, the learner would approach the rabbi and ask to be his student. And so the rabbi would meet with him, and he'd ask him some questions. And if he thought the student had promise, if he thought he had what it takes, he'd take him on as a disciple. But most of the time, they didn't. I mean, you had to be the best of the best to be picked at all because the rabbi was saying, I'm going to be devoting my life to you. I'm going to be walking with you. We're in this together. And so you're not going to pick somebody that you didn't think wasn't really committed to following. So most of the time, the answer was no. (laughs) No, you can't be my disciple. You're a nice young man. Go get married. Start a family. That's great. Find your occupation. But here's the deal. If you got accepted, then you were all in. I mean, you were ready for that. left your family. You left your synagogue. You basically gave up your whole life. And you devoted yourself to being discipled, to following this rabbi. It was called Bet Midrash, the house of study. There's a pastor and author I like, John Ortberg, he uses the phrase wearing the dust of the rabbi to describe this process. You guys remember the old Charlie Brown cartoons with Pigpen, the character, and he had like that dust storm that swirled around him, and if he'd walk by, you like got covered in it, it was all over you. He's saying that's what this looks like. That's what this process is like. You follow this guy so closely, if he kicks up some dust, you're getting it on you. There's a guy named Ray von der He's a New Testament scholar. He studied in a Jewish seminary in Manhattan in the mid-1980s. This is about the time I got the lyrics for Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go stuck in my head. Now it's stuck in your head. You're welcome. There were 23 students in class, and von der shared he struggled mightily in seminary for two reasons, and the first was out of the 23 students, the other 22 had the Old Testament memorized. This wasn't first century. This was 30 years ago. These guys are memorizing the entire Old Testament. But the other area where he really struggled was in wearing the dust. I mean, it, it just seemed really odd to him. He found it really, really weird. Like the other guys in class, they would follow the rabbi into the bathroom. Maybe they wanted to know how he went to the bathroom. I don't know. Maybe they thought, hey, he's going to say a prayer in there, and we're going to miss it. You know? I don't know what it was, but, but that's what they did. It must have been really awkward for that guy the first time. Like he picks up his copy of the Torah and shoves it under his arm and heads off, and here's 22 guys walking along by it. But, but it makes sense, if you think about it. If that's the deal, if I want to be so close to you that I'm wearing your dust, I'm learning everything you do, then that's what we'd do. We'd follow them everywhere. And actually, we see this. After Jesus calls his first disciples, right away we see this, this concept in action. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 35 to 37. Let me set just a little context for this. This is early in Jesus' ministry, and he's done some public teaching, and then he cleanses a guy with a demon. It says an unclean spirit in the text. He heals Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. And early in Christ's ministry, we see him doing a lot of these things in public. He does them intentionally where other people will see him because he knows then the word will get out about what he's doing, who he is. And sure enough, the text says, the whole city gathered at the door, and Jesus got to work. The passage says he healed many. And I love that in there. It doesn't say he healed all of them. I mean, what, what do you think the deal with that is? Somebody showed up and they had like, you know, something was too hard for Jesus to heal. Oh, man, that's a tough one. I don't know if I can get that one or not. No, that's not what it is at all. I think we understand he's doing this intentionally. He's always teaching. And here he had the disciples with him. And I think the lesson was, I'm not going to do all this work. I'm pouring into you guys. I'm equipping you. There's going to be a time when you're going to be able to do these things. Because I'm not supposed to do this alone. I think that's important for us to catch from there. But what we see in these next verses is that early on, the disciples wanted to wear Jesus' dust. Verse 35 says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house. And he went away to a secluded place and he was praying there. There's a good practice. And Simon and his companions searched for him and they found him and said, Where'd you go? He said, Everyone's looking for you. And in context, we understand it's, you did all that cool stuff. You were doing the healing and the miracles, and the folks saw you do it, and now they want us to do it. They know we're your disciples, so they came to us, but they're looking for you. And so we need to be with you. We're not able to handle stuff like that yet. We clearly have more learning to do. You saw this in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. We saw it in Mark 1, 16 to 20. Jesus, who's the rabbi, comes and asks these guys to drop everything and follow him. And they do, and now we see they really want to follow him. They're seeking him out. They want to wear his dust. And I think that should give us a little better sense sense of why they so quickly obeyed that command to follow Jesus. And here's the proposal I'm thinking is, I think growing up they wanted to be rabbis. I think they'd started out in Bet Sefer, and somewhere along the way they'd stopped showing promise, and they dropped out. Maybe some of them had even made it to Bet Talmud, and then they applied with a rabbi for Bet Midrash, and they've been told, no, I'm sorry, you don't have what it takes, go become a fisherman. But now a rabbi, not just a rabbi, the rabbi, Scripture said he taught with authority. The rabbi is flipping the script, and instead of waiting for them to come to him and ask, hey, can I follow you, he's going to them and saying, follow me. Well, of course, of course they drop everything. They would have been prepared to do that anyway if they're going to go into Bet Midrash. So they drop their nets, they leave the tax collector's booth, and they follow him. I think there's a little biblical support for this. Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 4, and verse 13. I think there's a little clue in there that it may have happened somewhat like this. Now, before this, this you know, Jesus had shared that passage from last week. He'd given the mandate to go make disciples, and now the Holy Spirit has come to indwell all believers at Pentecost. And so two of Jesus' followers, two of his disciples, Peter and John, those are guys who went searching for Jesus just a few minutes ago because they couldn't do anything. They weren't ready to make disciples. Now they're doing miracles. Now they're boldly explaining the plan of salvation. And they're not worried about the consequences. It says they get thrown into prison. And there's this group of people there, the rulers and the elders and the scribes, those of high priestly descent. These would have been educated people. They were there and they're talking. And here's what they realize in verse 13. They say, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What does that mean, uneducated and untrained men? It means they flunked out of rabbi school. But this is great because it doesn't matter they flunked out because now they've been with Jesus. Jesus was their rabbi as we work through this understanding of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, I think it's helpful to look at what it meant for the disciples, those people Jesus called to be his followers. It's helpful to look at that passage in Acts and understand. Jesus gave that mandate we looked at last week. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's what he meant. I'll be with you. That's the thing the high priest remembered. These rabbi school dropouts had been with Jesus. Now next week, we're going to look more closely at why Jesus chose those 12, specifically poured into three. But for today, as we keep digging into this notion of what a disciple is, what that word means, we see here in the Gospels, most of the time, that word's talking about those 12 guys. It's used that way over 80 times, those followers of Jesus. So a little review, sometimes disciple references general followers. Most of the time in the Gospels, it's talking about these 12 guys, but there's some other uses. Sometimes it's used to refer to the multitude of people who are around who believed the words that Jesus spoke. And they may have been true believers, they may not have. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Jesus saw the crowds, big crowd. He went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. John chapter 8, verse 30 and 31, same thing. As he spoke these things, he's teaching in public, many came to believe in him. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Now this larger group of disciples had a big cross-section of people in it. I mean, for sure there were educated people in there, there were scribes, and for sure there were sinners in there. It's a big group. And I think for sure there were some folks who treated being a disciple like they were following the circus. They were just hanging around, waiting for a big show, waiting to see what was going to happen next. They wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle. or Maybe they wanted to get some free food, or maybe both, like the scene where Jesus multiplies the fish and the loaves. There were a lot of people in this group who liked what Jesus said, and they wanted to receive some blessings, but I don't know if they really believed in Jesus. I don't know if they put their trust in Jesus. I think they were just caught up in all this excitement. And I think we know this. I think we know they weren't true disciples, weren't committed followers, because every now and again, Jesus would intentionally thin the crowds out. He was calling folks to really be committed, and so he'd throw out some really, really tough teaching to see what would happen. He does this in John 6. He gives like this vampire sermon. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. So that's a true disciple. Then you really get it if you become a cannibal. Is that what he's teaching? No. That's a lesson about relationship. That's a lesson about abiding in Christ, that he'd be with us, he'd be in us, and we'd be with him. But not everyone got the teaching. You know this for sure in John 6, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew. We're not walking with him anymore. As a result of what? The vampire sermon. Freaked folks out. It's too much to handle. Hey, I came for the free fish, and now all of a sudden he's saying, I got to eat him? No, I'm out of here. But the guys who were committed to follow, the guys who were wearing the dust of the rabbi, did they go? The answer is in the next verse, John 6 and 67. So Jesus said to the 12, You don't want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, they were committed to being with Jesus. These guys are followers of Jesus. Now, here's the deal. I guarantee you they probably didn't understand everything about the vampire sermon. But we're saying we're in this with you. We're wearing your dust. We're following you. So that's the word disciple in the gospel. So much of the time, it refers to these 12 guys. You see it used some generically across the board to refer to followers. And some of them were probably genuine and some of them not so genuine. But now you jump to the book of Acts, and you see that word disciple shift in meaning. Throughout Acts, Dr. Luke, who's the inspired author, he refers to the 12 as the apostles, they're eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. And he uses that term disciples as a general term for all believers in Christ. There's a couple exceptions. You look through the book, a couple verses where the 12 are still called disciples. But in general, that's the change you see. So starting in Acts, all Christ followers, all the true believers in Christ are called disciples. So why don't we use that word today? I mean, do you say that if someone asks, hey, what's your religious faith? And you say, oh, I'm a disciple. No, typically we use a different word today to describe followers of Christ. And it's a word I'm sure that you're aware of. And it comes with some baggage, I think, of its own. But I don't know that it's quite as scary a word as disciple. It's the term Christian. There are folks who will identify with Christian. They'll embrace that term, but they'll run from disciple because it sounds too hard. The problem I have with Christian is I think sometimes it sounds too easy. The group, the Barna Group, they do research and surveys. Their president, David Kinnaman, they did a survey. This is only a couple of years old. It was random, folks. This man on the street, sporting events, shopping malls. They asked this question: Are you a Christian? Any guess to what percentage of people in America claimed that title, Christian? Seventy-eight point four percent. Does that sound right? In your neighborhood, are four out of five people, Christ followers. Your workplace, your school. Roughly 80% of the people you run around with, are they following Jesus? You know, the survey results are really sad because the Barna group asked the follow-up questions. One of the basic ones, how do you become a Christian? And statistically, the number one answer they received fell into this category. Well, if you just try to be a good person. If you do more good than bad, is that how we become Christ followers? See, it really doesn't matter the term we use doesn't matter if we call ourselves Christians or Christ followers or disciples. It really doesn't matter because, very honestly, it's so much more about a lifestyle that we would lead than a label that we'd use to describe it. So much more about that relationship we live with in Christ, following him, making disciples who make disciples, than it is about what we call ourselves. You know the word Christians only used three times in the Bible? And when you see it, it's, it's truly used by outsiders to describe a group they're not even part of. It's a derogatory term. They're they're name-calling. It's used in Acts chapter 26 and verse 28. Here the apostle Paul's on trial, and he's in trial before the king, and he's in trial before the governor. Agrippa's there, and Festus is there, and Paul is killing it. He's explaining boldly, here's who Jesus is. Here's what's happened in my life. And he gets to the part about Christ's resurrection, and he gets to the part about explaining why it happened so that salvation would be available both to the Jew and to the non-Jew, the Gentile. And Festus finally has had enough. And he says, Paul, your great learning is driving you mad. You're losing it. You're crazy. And Paul turns to the king and he says, you know I'm not crazy, don't you? And the king says this in verse 28. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you'll persuade me to become a Christian. You'll persuade me to join in with the crazy talking bunch. It wasn't a good term. Those on the outside viewed Christians as the crazy people. You see this word again in 1 Peter 4, verse 16. Peter is explaining that genuine Christ followers are going to be persecuted. We should be able to, we we would be able to share the sufferings of Jesus. He says this in verse 15 to 16 in 1 Peter 4. Make sure that none of you suffers for wrong reasons. He lists some as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed. He's to glorify God in this name. He's saying live a life that shows discipleship. Live as a Christ follower by not doing those first things. But when you suffer in this name, the name Christian, then you'll glorify God. He's saying you'll be persecuted just for wearing that name, Christian. It was a derogatory term. Believers didn't call themselves that. It was the folks outside the believing community who used it. We actually see this right from the very first mention of the word. It's the only other mention In Scripture, turn with me if you would to Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-six, and set the scene there. Jesus ascends to heaven, and there was widespread persecution of his followers there in Jerusalem. Now they called themselves something else; they had their own inside term. They called themselves followers of the Way. Jesus is the Way and the Truth and the Life, so that's what they called themselves. And so these followers of the Way are scattered all over the place because of the persecution, and some of them went to a city in modern-day Turkey called Antioch, and there they went in with that idea, hey, we're going to be disciples who make disciples, and so there's a bunch of Greek-speaking, Roman-influenced people in Antioch, and they heard the things these followers of the way were saying. They said, hey, there's this guy over in Jerusalem, Jesus. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. They explained the entire plan of salvation, and they made disciples, and so these Christ followers and their disciples, they started a church in Antioch, So word gets back to Jerusalem. That's where Peter and James, Jesus' brother, are. And they hear about what's going on over in Antioch. So they send Barnabas over to check it out because they really like to stay there in Jerusalem. And Barnabas went, and he was blown away. He was just blown away by what was going on in this church. And it says in the text, God's grace there was so apparent and how they formed. And so he gets excited, and he goes to Tarsus to get his buddy Saul. That's the apostle Paul. He's Saul of Tarsus. And he gets them, and they both go back. And here's what happened. Acts 11, verse 26. And when he had found him, when Barnabas found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year there, they met with the church, and they taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They didn't call themselves that. They called themselves followers of the way. They were disciples. But the outsiders, the folks who saw this happening, they called them Christians. So when that term was first introduced, you know, as as a way for outsiders to identify this group that followed Christ, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference in the terms. The disciples, that's who they were, no longer just the 12, the whole group, they followed the way they were first called Christians. And so the name seems almost interchangeable. Now, flash forward to today, 78.4% of Americans call themselves Christians, yet can't explain what it means to follow Christ. What's happened? (laughs) What's happened to that term? Back in the day, here's what happened. If you presented a situation to a disciple and you said, hey, you got a decision to make, here's this thing, you know what the disciple would do? He'd go to his rabbi and he'd go, hey, if this situation came up, what would you do? And he'd wait for the answer and he'd go, okay, good, that's what I'll do. Because I'm following you. I want to wear your dust. I want to learn from you. So whatever you do, I'll do. I'm a student of yours. I'm learning from you. See, this is the essence of what the disciples did as they were following Jesus. Now, they messed up. They messed up along the way, but they were learning how to follow Jesus. So I hope that's what we understand as we get this opportunity, this challenge, to be disciple-makers. We're we're not just going to sit with somebody one time. We're going to walk with people. We're going to share our lives with them. It's not going to be all about Bible study, although I hope for sure we we do that with them, but it's going to be about sharing our lives with them, living life together got a good friend that I disciple. I meet with him every other Wednesday at four o'clock. I've known this guy for 12 or 13 years, but I just started discipling him again within the last few months. Met him and uh, God was so gracious and used me to lead him to himself in young life years ago. But now he's a different guy. He's a, a father and he wants to be a better father and he's a husband. And, and so he, we come and we hang out together. And last week he came and he, he threw this one at me. He's like, I really want to make a difference in my neighborhood. I really want to see Christ have an impact in my neighborhood. What do you think I should do? And so I told him about a small group that I started last year. I had a real burden on my heart for the folks who work at the Rhodes convenience store over across the street. I said, here's what I did. I started a small group with these folks. And I shared with him kind of some of the fruit and some of the neat things that I'd seen. And I got done, and he's like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a small group. Now, here's the deal. That's so far out of his comfort zone, it's not even funny. He is so quiet. He's solid, just a solid guy. But that's not something he would normally do on his own. But he said, well, the guy who's discipling me, that's what he said, I'm going to do it. Now, here's the deal. I don't want him to be like me. I want him to be like Jesus. (laughs) But the idea is we're going to walk in this together, and I'm going to help him and try and equip him, and we're going to go and see what this small group does for him. I'm discipling him. So can I ask a scary question here today? Are we Christians or are we disciples? Because I think a disciple's answer to any question that comes up is, is that what Jesus did? Okay, I'll do that. So just for the fun of it, let's take a little test before we leave today. should have warned you ahead of time. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I want you to see I didn't make up this test. Jesus did. It's a test that he uses with the 12 disciples. But the question in it has universal implications. It works for anyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus. If we're going to use this term, disciple, to identify followers of Christ, this is a good litmus test. And let me tell you going in, it's a hard test. If in the timeline of history more people had passed this test, the world we live in would look differently. I guarantee it. I've taken this test many times. Many times I've failed it miserably. Sometimes I've passed it. When I pass it, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's in this fascinating passage in Scripture. There's this great teaching about servant leadership, and then Jesus starts setting the stage for what's going to happen next. It's towards the end of his public ministry. It's right for his crucifixion. Here he indicates one of his disciples is going to betray him, and then he throws out this test. It starts in verse 33 of John 13. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me, and uh, as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going You cannot come. Students, he says, I'm not going to be present with you in this body for too much longer. And you're going to want to come looking for me like you used to before because you're wanting to wear my dust. I love that. But this time, you can't follow. Your role has been following me. But physically, you won't be able to anymore. But here's the deal. I still want you to follow me. It's just going to have to look different. So now, I'm going to have to really amp up the teaching because this is going to be on you. See, the gospel message needs to be spread, and it's going to be on you. The church is going to need leadership, and it's going to be on you. I want you to make disciples who will mature and make more disciples, and it's going to be on you. And I want you to understand, I'm going to be with you, but it's not the way that you're used to. In the next chapter, in John 14, he tries to explain how he'll be with them through the presence of the Holy Spirit, but they're so freaked out because he keeps says he's leaving that they don't get it then. They get it later. You know, it's, the, it's the miracle, of the Holy Spirit being with us. He never leaves us. Jesus would go to the woods and be with his father, and they'd freak out, Where are you, Jesus? You know, and it's going to be better. He tells them it'll be better. But it's hard for them to grasp that. That's something we have a leg up on, the early disciples, the Old Testament saints. They didn't understand the idea, of the Holy, Pres- Holy Spirit being present with them. We do. But here Jesus says, This following thing, this being my disciple, it's going to look different when I'm not physically here for you to follow. So I'm going to explain the core of it. I'm going to test you on the essence of it. And here's the test. It's in verses 34 to 35. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this test, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I can see the disciples gearing up for the test. I can see them, you know, getting out of their notepads and they're sitting and they're writing stuff down. And Jesus is like, it's a new commandment. And Peter's like, okay, I got a new commandment. He says, love one another. And Peter goes, love one another? It's not a new commandment. You already said that. You got anything else? Jesus says, no. That's the test of discipleship. The way that you show love to one another will let folks see if you really are disciples. So how are we doing we really disciples it's clear from the context that the disciples didn't grasp the importance of the test quite yet and i want to give them some slack because i failed this test so often myself It's so much easier to say well of course i'm a christian i'm a christian i read a lot of christian books i'm a christian i own seven bibles of course i'm a christian i listen to christian music in my car of course i'm a christian i give both tithes and offerings I'm a Christian. I pray before most meals, eat, sometimes even if I'm by myself. I'm a Christian. I anonymously donated that car the pastor's driving. All good things, by the way, not the car thing. But is any of that on the test? No. The test is, do I love the way Jesus loves? A couple of years ago, I used to be accountability partners with a guy. He's, he's moved away since then. The guy just showed up here at the church one day and he's on staff at another church, another big church here in town. And he showed up. He's like, I don't know exactly why I'm here. <laughs> you know, I need somebody to hold me accountable. And I was here. He ended up in my office. And he started sharing you know, some of these things he'd been struggling with, some baggage he'd been carrying for a long time. And it was baggage that I'd carried for a long time and gave to Jesus to carry because it was too heavy. And I said, I know why you're here <laughs> because I, I, Jesus took that baggage from me. And I, I agreed to meet with him. I met with him like once a month. I was going to kind of mentor him and, and hold him accountable. But I asked him right up front, and I was like, I mean, this is cool and everything, but isn't there somebody on staff over at your church that could do this? You know, why'd you come over here? And I'll never forget his answer because it was so great. He says, my goal in this is to become more Christ-like. My goal in this is to be transparent. And so I'm afraid to do this with somebody on staff at my church because I might lie to save my job. I liked that guy <laughs> right away. And so we'd meet, and whenever we'd meet, my deal was I had to ask him three questions. And the first two questions were, I mean, they're kind of graphic. They were specifically about things that he struggled with. But the third question was this test. Every time I met with him, I was supposed to ask, how are you doing at loving people like Jesus has loved you? I'd like a different test question, please. Got anything else? This is the test. John 13, Jesus is saying, the best way to do that, the best way to show you're my disciple is by loving the way that I've loved you. Did you fail the test? Don't have to raise your hands. I've failed it before so many times. It makes you feel any better, and I truly hope it doesn't. Peter failed it too. (laughs) As soon as Jesus gave the test, look at the very next verse. John 13, 36. Jesus says, This new commandment I've given you, love one another. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Come on. I'm not worried about the commandment. I want to know where you're going. I can't go. Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow me later. Peter would have liked the test to have been about labels. Peter would have liked the test to have been about listening to the right kind of music. But then he really amps it up. He decides, as the story continues, he's going to shoot for extreme discipleship. He says, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I'd die for you. And Jesus gets real serious. He says, in just a few hours, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. I don't want you to follow me to the grave, although you will follow me there later. I want you to follow my example. And I know that'll be even harder for you, but I want you to love these other guys. That'll prove that you get what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of mine. Jesus says to Peter, love the 12. Love them in such a way that people looking outside will be blown away by that. Love all the disciples. Love them so genuinely so purely that outsiders will be drawn to it instead of calling us derogatory names. They'll want to experience that kind of life and love. Folks are drawn to that. Have you seen that? It's like a moth to flame. They're mesmerized by it because truly we see so little of it around us. Jesus says you want to pass the test, you want to prove you're my disciples and that you follow me, that you've learned from me, as a student does from a rabbi, then do this, love. Is that the word people would use to describe us today? Think about us as a church corporately. Is that the word? Man, you see those folks over at Cape Bible Chapel? Man, do they love one another. They really love and care for each other. Man, do you see how they treat the outside community? Man, they're so sacrificial in the way they serve. Man, that, that community, they love one another.
1: Wouldn't that be
0: awesome? And this worked back in the day, by the way. This is the scene in what the early church looks like. We'll close with this in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They, the followers of the way, the disciples, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, this is the 12, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed because they were out making disciples were together, And they had all things in common, and they began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. They truly loved one another. And they loved one another so much that it looked unusual in a good way. They had favor with folks who weren't followers of the way. And those folks were saying, man, that's attractive. Look at how those disciples of Jesus treat one another. Man, I'm blown away by that. And they were so impacted that they listened to the apostles' teaching. And they heard the gospels and they became new in Christ. And then the mandate applied to them, same as it does to us today. We're supposed to be disciples who make disciples, not of ourselves, but of Jesus Christ. You want to try something crazy this week? People say, man, that's crazy. Take the test. What would it look like if we made that commitment right here, every one of us, to say, hey, this week, I'm going to take that person who is hardest for me to love, and I'm going to love them. I'm going to show that I'm a follower of Christ by loving them. I don't know who that is for you. Maybe it's your spouse Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's somebody at school. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's somebody on staff here at the chapel. I don't know. You know who it is for you. But the question is, how could we love them as Christ has loved us this week? Not as a means to an end, not so you can make them change. My boss is horrible. I'm going to go love him until he gives me a raise. It's not that. The means to the end is this. Love them in such a way That it'd show we understand what being a true disciple of Jesus Christ is. Let's try that this week. Let me pray. Father God, if we're able to stand and sing and worship, if we're able to be here and engage with you, if we're Christ's followers and we love you, and we want to show that we're your disciples. God, help us do something crazy this week. Help us to love. Help us to love the way you've loved us. God, give us everything we need because here's the deal. We understand that you're with us. You don't leave us or forsake us. And maybe the reason we don't love this person is because it's hard. But God, there's nothing too hard for you. And the idea is you're with us because you've equipped us and you've given us gifts. There's work that you're going to do through us. You could do it yourself so much better. But God, you use us and you get the glory. Help us to love as individual Christ followers as a church. God, help us to do it so that we'll show that we understand the meaning of being a disciple. Be with us. Burden us. We love you and we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.